can I just take a quick moment before we get into where we're going this morning to just say a special thank you to Kyle Brenneman and Tiberius Ratza and Jeff Gill for teaching you so well over the last three weeks. Woo! Man. So thankful for those brothers and uh, what a privilege to dial in and to be so uh, encouraged by what they had to to share. Uh, This morning we are starting a new series that we are calling Revelation in Red. And um, in this series, we're just going to take some time to journey through uh, some the epistles of Jesus, letters that Jesus dictated for seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And our hope is that as we eavesdrop on the letters that Jesus dictated for these unique churches in that unique time, that the Holy Spirit will pen his own unique notes to our, our hearts and that he'll invite us into some of the truths that we're going to discover in these letters uh, together. But we're going to get into the letters next week. This, this morning, we, we just want to take some time to get our bearings. We, we want to take some time to get some of the framing of these letters, some of the setup. We want to get a sense and the heart of this book so that as we step into these letters, we have some of the tailwind carried a little bit um, into what it is we're going to see. So if you have a copy of the scripture, we need to get right into it. The the, the first chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. And uh, at the end of the service, you can head to the Connection Corner and just let somebody know you need the Bible. The Connection Corner, by the way, is a one-stop shop for everything. If you need groceries, uh, if you need toothpaste, just go to the Connection Corner. Uh, But we'd love to get a copy of the Bible in your hands. For this morning, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen, and you'll be able to follow along um, that way. Revelation um, chapter... One And let me just say by way of caution, because I love you, uh, I even like uh, some of you, that we are going to, um, we're going to read and then we're going to pause and we're going to make observations and then we're going to revel a little bit, then we're going to read some more, then we're going to pause and then we're going to ponder. And I just want to tell you that to save you emotional whiplash so you are uh, fully braced um, for that cadence, for that um, rhythm. So Revelation chapter 1, okay? Here's, um, here's how it starts. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus Christ, to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay, so uh, the book pretty much opens and, and it launches us into the, the who's and the why's. Apparently at some point, God the Father gave Jesus his son this revelation so that Jesus his son would in turn get this revelation to us, his followers, his friends, as it says in this um, verse, his servants, so that we might be read in on and ready for some key events, some significant events that are coming in the future. Um, This is the who, this this is the why. And we learn, by the way, right away, that what we are about to get read in on is a revelation. 
um, this book is called the book of Revelation. When we open its pages and we start to read its words, what we are reading is Revelation. Um, when we start to look at these seven letters to these seven unique churches, what it is we're going to be reading is Revelation. Revelation is such a cool word, by the way. Revelation, such a cool word. Um, I have an iPad right here. And um, for the better part of every week, it sits on some counter in our home. Um, when I first bought this iPad a number of years ago, um, I did the responsible parental thing. I put um, a access code on it that only I and my wife, Melissa, knew. I'm a responsible dad. I had no idea what my kids might order from Amazon Prime if they gained access to the iPad. So we put this, this, this code that Melissa and I, well, let me rephrase. I thought my wife knew the code to the, to the iPad until one day she had to access the iPad and she was attempting to access the iPad and um, access was severely denied. She couldn't get into the iPad. So she's getting a little bit frustrated and she's getting a little bit uh, worked up um, until out of her periphery, she, um, she felt the exasperated sigh of my then preteen son. And he's like, oh. <laughs> Access granted. Now she's frazzled about a whole entirely different set of concerns. Hang on a second. How do you know the access code to the iPad? You guys are not that sneaky. Apparently, this blooming criminal had observed, he had observed us over time when we thought that we were so low-key, he had observed us and he had discerned and deciphered the access code to the iPad to the point where he knew the code better than his mom knew the code to the iPad, which is what's wrong with this country. It's, um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it turns out he, <laughs> he also knew the access code to my phone and to um, my wife's phone and the routing numbers for all our offshore accounts. Um, now, as far as I know, he never actually accessed our devices. He just walked around just enjoying the power of knowing he could, you know, if he wanted to do this. I don't know what made me think about that story, but um, I found it very, very funny. But now, thanks to Apple, I have a different kind of phone. I'm like, try and decipher my cornea, son. Um, Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I win, and really, that's what I, I, I wanted to share with you all. Okay, uh, Revelation. Uh, revelation is, is a word that means unveiling. It's such a powerful word. It's the idea of a veil being pulled back, revealing something that was previously hidden. Now, for, for this context, that's not saying it strongly enough. Revelation is the idea of pulling back the veil and revealing something that was previously unknowable. Revelation means I am going to let you in on something you could not possibly have known any 
other way. You could not have observed it over years and years and lifetimes and figured it out. You could not have studied it. You could not possibly have decoded it. You could not have deciphered it. You could not have broken in or bargained or bought it. There is no way you could have possibly gained access to what I'm about to tell you unless I revealed it to you. That's the idea of revelation. There's one way you get to know what we're about to see in this book, and it's because God pulls back the veil and says, let me let you in on some things. There is no, see, we pride ourselves in we studied some things and we, we pieced history together and we came up and in our blooming observations ended up, boop, 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 access granted, we figured this aspect out about God. We studied the book of Ephesians and in chapter 4 gave us a sense of polity and it gave us a sense of what we're going to do with church membership and how we're going to enfold people into ministry and we figured it out. Revelation is different. You don't know and you couldn't possibly know unless God revealed it to us. There's something powerful about that. And by the way, when you look at the scriptures and the way the Holy Spirit authored the scriptures, he would often work in, in sync with some of these authors and he would use their unique personalities and experiences. And so a guy like Mark who wrote his gospel account, well, he interviewed Peter and he interviewed a few other people and he pieced things together and the Spirit used that for the, the gospel of Mark. You, you read the book of Acts and Luke tells you, hey, I'm a doctor. I wasn't with Jesus, but I've thoroughly researched and I've figured it out and I talked to this person so that you, most excellent Theophilus, would get a unflawed recollection of Jesus' life. He pieced this whole thing together, but the book of Revelation is different. It is God saying, I'm going to let you all in on something you couldn't have otherwise known. And I just tell that to you to invite you into a posture of expectancy of leaning in because if really he's about to unveil and let us into what's behind the veil then I trust that our posture through this series is going to be one of we don't want to miss a thing we want everything that you have to say to us and then he goes on um, says he made this revelation known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So technically, God gave the revelation to Jesus, and Jesus gave it to a guy named John. And, and this guy named John played the role of secretary. He played the role of scribe. He played the role of stenographer. You pick. The point is, John was tasked with the job of telling exactly what he saw and exactly what he heard. Don't get cute. Don't get creative. Don't try and add this or that to the other. So that generations down the line in Warsaw, Indiana, a group of people are going to get the unadulterated revelation that I gave to you which is what we now have the privilege of looking at, revelation. How awesome is that, by the way? What do we do with something this beautiful? What do we do with revelation? Great question. Um, verse 3. Blessed, it says, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Let me just stop and say, this may sound funny to you, but it is oh so real. The fact that I am standing up here and reading 
from the book of Revelation out loud to you invites a divine blessing on my head. Can you all see it? I don't know what it looks like. I don't exactly know what it feels like, but I want all of it. Yes, please, Lord. By virtue of the fact that I am reading the, I don't know about you, but if I'm you, I am walking the halls of campus reading the book of Revelation out loud, talking about, I'm trying to get blessed, boo. You don't have to get it. I don't know about you, mama, but I'm sitting around the table just reading the book of Revelation to my captive audience children, telling them I want a blessing on this house. You're going to work tomorrow reading Revelation out loud to your boss. Unemployed, but blessed, though. Um, before the era of the printing press and our fancy devices, the people in, in that time didn't have personalized copies of the scripture. They didn't have personalized, uh, you know, downloaded, whatever, you know, this version and that version and this language on their devices. And so they, the way they would hear God's word is because somebody would be assigned the role of standing up in front of the congregation and reading his word out loud. And that would have been true with the book of Revelation. Each of these seven churches would have had somebody come and stand in the midst and read the book in its entirety. That's how they would have heard it. And that person would have been considered blessed by virtue of the fact that they were reading these words out loud. But lest you be tempted to feel excluded, there is a greater blessing reserved. And it's not for the reader. Uh, look at what um, John continues to say in the second part of this. He says, and blessed are those who hear it, the revelation, and take the revelation to heart because the time is Near. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Blessed is the reader, thank you Lord, but more so blessed is the person who takes what they hear to heart. Blessed, in other words, um, is the person who hears and does something with what they hear. Blessed is the person who applies what they hear in the revelation to their lives. Buff is not the person with a YMCA card but the person who actually uses the card. Blessed and buff is not the person with the, the, the student ID and access to the GREC. No, it's the person who actually does something with it. This is the message that John is launching into here. And I felt the weight of this for my own life as I read it. I was on a flight um, from Charlotte to Fort Wayne uh, a few days ago. And I'm just telling you, uh, the flight attendant on that flight was amazing. Amazing. And I'm not talking about the way she served the cabin. No, no, I'm talking about the way she flowed in that pre-flight precautionary spiel thing. Oh, man, it was 
epic. I was transfixed listening to her flow off the dome, as the kids say. It was lit, as the kids say. I don't know if they still say, say that. Um, but the last time I checked, a couple of years ago, they said that. Um, it was unbelievable. I'm sitting there, and I am captivated. She picks up the mic and she comes over the loudspeakers and with poetry and effortless perfection, she spent the next five minutes from memory just telling us all the stuff, you know, the things. And I wish I could do it justice, but I cannot. Her name is Delin. I need to look her up on Facebook or something like that. But anyway, so she starts in on this, like, you know, sit down and, and put on your seatbelt like so, you know, because uh, of turbulence and stuff. You know, she was more poetic than I'm being right now. Um, and then she, you know, she moves on to like, and hey, don't smoke in the restroom and don't mess with the, the smoke detectors in the restroom either. And um, in the event that we should lose cabin pressure, um, this thing will fall down and this is how you take in the oxygen. And, but the way she said it, though, oh, you had to be there. And then she got into this whole thing about like, and in the event that, you know, we should have a water landing, apparently there's a little floaty, you know, that, that will be accessible to you and here's how you put it on a poop. And this is how you make it, you know, inflate and I'm just captivated by the way she delivered that thing and at the end she drops the mic and I'm ready to give her snaps and then I look around by the way and I'm just totally disappointed in humanity because no one else is paying attention everyone else is looking at their devices or doing some crossword puzzle and I'm like you are missing the most poetic performance of this precautionary spiel Ever. What is wrong with you people? I was a little bit exasperated, but I'm like, no, I've got to let her know. So I told her, I said, Dylan, that was just, that was effortless. I'm just, I was really good. And she looked at me kind of like, like, I know this, you know, I'm like, all right, whatever. You're still good. You know, a little cocky, but whatever, you know. <laughs> It was really, really, really special. And again, you had to be there um, maybe, you know, maybe to fully appreciate it. Um, and then later on, um, I was, I was, uh, I was thinking, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those moments later on where I'm like, um, wait a minute, wait a wait, wait a minute, did she say in the event of a water landing? I don't want to land on water. Why would we land on water? Is there even water between Charlotte and Indiana? I don't know, but why? This is scary. And all of a sudden, it occurs to me like I have flown way too often, as is true for everybody else sitting in this cabin, because I was busy applauding her spiel. Everybody else had just tuned her out, and I forgot that she was not performing. She was giving us a precaution in an attempt to prepare us in the event that things went severely south. Literally. Um, anyway, I get so confused where I was. Okay, so um, Jesus tells John, hey, tell my people, blessed is the one, not who hears my word, not who listens to it, but the one who does something with it. Here's what struck me. <clears throat> See, because if we're honest, a bunch of us have flown church way too long. 
So we're going to sit in this room, and we're going to sit in these comfortable seats, and we're going to strap in. And you know what we're going to do? <laughs> we're going to listen to another pastoral attendant give us his spiel. And we're going to say we've heard it all before, blah, blah, blah. Let's just get in our devices. Or we're going to say, let's evaluate and grade his performance. How did he do? I think he did pretty well the way he connected that decoding thing to Revelation. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, how are you guys missing this? He's doing such a good job. Good job, preacher. You did really well. You performed on point. In fact, we're going to come to your church because we like the way you perform up there. We've flown church way too long. And Jesus says, tell my people, blessed is not the person who shows up to church and sits in those seats, straps in, and evaluates a sermon. Blessed is not the person who opens my Bible, reads the words, and says, that was interesting. Blessed is not the person who hears it over and over again until it becomes familiar, until eventually they tune it out. Blessed is only the person who does something about it, realizing my word is not a performance, it's a precaution. And it's a preparation. Listen to me. The word blessed in this context means to be ready or to be prepared. Jesus is literally telling John, please tell my church, there is only one kind of church person who will be prepared for the things I'm about to show you. And it's not the person who goes often and listens much. It's going to be the person who asks, what does this revelation require of That's the only person who will be ready because, hey, spoiler alert, church. Spoiler alert. We are going to experience some turbulence. The cabin pressure is going to drop. And for many of us, life will experience some water landings. And the only person who will be ready is not the person who tuned it out, but the person who said, what does truth require of me? What does revelation require of me? And is learning to put into practice. I'm telling you right now, sitting in this room, there are two kinds of people, and only one of them is blessed. And it's the person who is in the habit of asking, and what are you calling me to do with what I'm reading in your word? What are you calling me to do with what I'm hearing? There'll be only one of us who's ready. And the invitation of this book is listen up, lean in, and live out what it is that you hear. And that's the posture, by the way, we want to go into these letters with. What are you calling us to do with this. How are you calling us to respond? Blessed is the one who takes it to heart. I pray that that will be our posture as we look at his word. That will be our posture, not one of evaluation and performance, but one of God and his grace is preparing us. And we want to be ready for what he is doing. And then John finally gets to his customary um, greeting. Um, verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Um, and you notice, um, 
John doesn't even bother introducing himself. This is really uh, great, and there's no big deal here. It's just that, you know, John is, is, is a really familiar character. Um, so, you know, he says, hey, guys, it's John. You know, kind of like if your phone rang, you know, and it was an unknown number, and you picked it up, and on the other end, the voice introduced himself. Hey, what's up? It's LeBron. Right? You would be like, ah, my goodness, do you have Steph Curry's number? Because he's the world champion, right? I mean, that's what you do. But what you wouldn't do, what you wouldn't do is say LeBron who? It's like, come on, baby, you know it's LeBron, you know? This is John, right? Hey, it's John. You all know me. You know my work. You have my albums. Um, because John would have been a really key leader um, in that Roman province of Asia among those churches who would have been very significant. They would have known him. They would have loved him. They would have trusted him, which means whatever he's about to say, they're going to receive with trust and expectancy. Um, by the way, we don't know. It's interesting that, that we're looking at these letters to these seven specific churches, but there were more churches in that region, and we don't know why it's these seven churches and not those other churches. People speculate. They think maybe it's because those churches were strategically placed, you know, for global distribution so this letter could get out. Some people assume, well, seven is the number of perfection, and maybe there's something there, or maybe they were going through a unique struggle at that time, but, but we don't know. We're really not told why these seven churches, um, which for all intents and purposes is a good place for us to just say, like, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter why these seven churches and not those other churches, why Jesus spoke to these seven churches and not those other churches. Maybe it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that Jesus is bringing revelation and that these churches would ask, what does revelation require of us? That these churches would respond to what Jesus is saying. Which, by the way, may be a good thing for us to just get into our system. You know, this whole, it doesn't really matter, because it really doesn't. It doesn't really matter, you know, why Jesus moved that way in that church and not that church. It really doesn't matter why, you know, what name is on the sign in front of that church. It really doesn't matter, you know, the, how they do their baptism. It doesn't really matter sometimes why their leadership structure is the way the leadership structure is. What really matters is do the people in that church hear the word of God and ask what does it require of us? That's what really matters. In which case it doesn't matter whether it's MPCC or it's CCC or it's WCC or it's WLGBC or it's WLFMC or all the other C's in our county. What really matters is are they doing what's been revealed to them by JC? Because frankly, that's really the only name that matters. And everyone knows, by the way, the coolest church in town is it's the church that does what Jesus says. And so I love that we don't know a lot of answers to some of these questions, but it's not really the point. Anyway, second part of verse 4, um, John continues his greeting and he says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne of God. I don't know why seven spirits again. It seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it's maybe seven functions he's playing in that particular context, but it seems to be some reference to him. But why seven spirits? I don't know. Ask Tiberius Ratza. You know, he'll tell you uh, the deep and meaningful answers to that. Um, and it says, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the 
earth. I love this. I Seriously, I sat in this for a pretty significant amount of time just reveling in it. John greets the churches by pronouncing grace and peace over them. Grace and peace, he says to y'all, from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. How huge is that? And I'll tell you why I think this is huge, because let's be honest. When most of us read the book of Revelation, if we dare, we tend to see this book as a book about dungeons and dragons and, and snakes and, and, and ladders and death and, and pestilence and da Vinci and codes and, and beasts and marks and things of that sort. It tends to be a terrifying book that's rated R and tucked away in the horror section. Freaks us out. And so we tend to keep away from it. And yet Jesus wants John, hey, when you start this book, I want you to pronounce over my people grace and peace, y'all. Grace and peace. That this revelation I'm about to give you is intended to let you in on where I'm taking things so I can invite you into more grace and so you can experience more Peace. Revelation is not a book ultimately about judgment and war. It's a book about grace and peace. Even if you read how it ends, it's this eternal kingdom of peace ever more. Grace and peace. It's a book about a God who is saying, in the cross I am offering to lift and remove judgment for sin from sinners. And I'm willing to bring about peace where there was once enmity. Because if you've sinned against God and Jesus has not forgiven you, you and God are enemies. And in this book, God is walking around the earth, you know, with this large vat of forgiveness and this large vat of grace. And he's saying, I'm willing to pour it out on anyone who would slip their hand up and say, I know I've messed up and I cannot fix it. I'm looking for an excuse to pour out grace and I'm looking for an excuse to bring about peace. That's what this revelation is ultimately about. And if your takeaway is death and destruction and plague and pestilence, you know, on how to train your dragon, Jesus would be like, well, um, I don't know what book you're reading. Because this book, this revelation is grace and peace. It is spiked with grace and peace through and through. It doesn't matter where you start to sip it. It doesn't matter where you start to read it. You're going to run into a God who is offering grace and who is offering peace. And then that's just reinforced in the titles he gives Jesus in verse 5 and 6. Did you see that? And it says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's grace. And has made us to be a kingdom of priests, kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever Amen. I love that. He loves us. Jesus loves us and he frees us from sin by his blood and he invites us to be his people in his presence and to serve with him. That's all grace and peace. And I love, by the way, the gospel is snuck in here. Jesus is his faithful witness. 
because he lived this perfect life that we couldn't live. That's how we can have peace with God. And then he died the death that we should have died, but then he rose from the dead. That's why it refers to him as a firstborn from among the dead. He's up. He's fine. He's okay. And he kept on rising, and now he is the king over all the kings. He reigns. And from that position of reigning, he's now revealing himself to us and saying, come on in and be part of what we're doing in this world. That's what this book is, grace and peace and this invitation to experience more of it and to partner with him in the work he's doing in the world. And when we start to read these letters, I long for the Spirit to do something that causes that to be our posture. We're looking for grace and we're looking for peace and we're asking, what does grace and peace require of me? Drink it deep. And that that would be what we experience more and more. But we're going to see something else as, as we journey through this book. It's something that seems like a tack on, and yet it is the greatest of the points. At the end of verse 6, it says to him, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, yes. But the ultimate thing is the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants to make us ready for what's to come. And he wants to pour out his grace, and he wants to bring about his peace, and he wants us to join him in his work as a kingdom of priests, ultimately for his glory, for his name's sake. And when we read these letters, we want to ask, how does Revelation call me to live my life more and more for his greatest glory. Because it's going to be tempting to look at this book and primarily put ourselves in the center of this thing like this book is ultimately about us. Can I just crush your dreams right now and tell you the book is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ and ultimately about his glory. And grace and peace, by the way, is most greatly enjoyed when we yield to that reality. That's when you're going to enjoy grace the most. And in fact, when you realize that he's forgiven me and he died for me, what do you want to do? You want to give glory to him. And isn't that the beautiful interaction? That he pours out his grace and we lift up his glory. And he pours out his grace and we lift up his glory in this glorious, beautiful exchange. And in case there's any mistaking the centrality of Jesus and his glory, John pretty much goes off prophesying about the return of Jesus. Verse 7. He says, look, he's coming with the clouds. Fact. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and those who rejected him and those who denied him and those who mocked him. Everybody will see him. All the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. And this is an allusion to those who rejected his grace and rejected his peace and are now seeing him and experiencing the ultimate regret. So shall it be. Amen. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love when he brags on himself like that. 
Tell them, John, I am the first and I am the last and I am everything in between. It's always been me. It will always be me. It's always been about me and it will always and ultimately be about me too. I love this. And it's so good for us to just settle and get used to this reality. It is him and has ultimately and always been about him. And if there's any question... John says, watch what happens when he breaks through and rides, surfs the cloud, and comes to earth. Then everything would definitely be put in its appropriate place. And anyone who shirked against this is going to involuntarily buckle and acknowledge the fact that you are great and yours is the great glory. And so what does revelation require of us? Well, revelation would require that we just start to live for his glory now. Let's not wait for that day to come. The blessed and ready person is the one who hears and says, I'm going to live for him. And in light of his glory and drinking in his grace right now. And then Jesus shows John his glory in this epic encounter. Before John gets into the content of these letters, he has this experience with Jesus, and, and he, he tells his listeners, hey, I want you to know where I got the revelation I'm passing on to you, and it was epic. Um, John, he's an old man at this point, and he's been exiled to this 16-mile island um, called Patmos. Patmos is this just rocky terrain um, island that you could think of as like the rock or Alcatraz. It's this place that the Romans would send criminals who they didn't necessarily want to execute or criminals who were of a higher stature or, or criminals in their minds who are like they're old. Let's just get rid of them so they're not a bother again. And John fell into that category. And so they sent him off to this place called um, Patmos to to die. Uh, that's where he's living. And one Sunday, John is, is praying, and he's in this posture of, Spirit, speak and show me whatever it is that you want to show me. And again, he's on this island, is isolated, but he desires to have church all by himself, and apparently where one is gathered, Jesus shows up, because this is pretty awesome. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and faithfully testifying to Jesus. On the Lord's Day, Sunday, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and whoa, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, hey, grace and peace. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead. That's old news. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades because I defeated them in a fell swoop. And write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now and what would take place later. This is awesome. When John hears this voice on this island, he turns and does what most of us would do to see who it is that's speaking. And when he sees Jesus, he involuntarily falls flat on his face as though dead. Which is awesome, by the way, because John was Jesus' closest earthly friend, one of his disciples. And John says, I reclined on Jesus' chest, we were that chill. And John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus peeled back the veil and allowed them to see a glimpse of his glory. But nothing could have prepared him for this. He had never seen Jesus like this. Knees buckled and dude was on the ground gripped with fear. As he has this experience with the Alpha and the Omega. As he has this experience with his Savior. He is freaking out. But tell me this is not the most memorable moment of his life. And I just, I'm just saying, um, this is what we want. We, we want an encounter with the real Jesus. Not our tame versions of Jesus, not the Jesus that we've become super familiar with, and we just sing to him with our hands in our pockets because he's chill. Not the predictable Jesus that we've decoded and we've figured out over time. John would have thought he knew Jesus, and then Jesus says, let me reveal myself to you. And nothing would have prepared him for this. And this is what we long for. And I don't know that we fully know what we're asking when we even say that. But my hope is that even as we work through this series, that Jesus in his grace would reveal himself to us as the risen king. And that he would reveal himself to us in the way he chooses. Not in the ways that, that we try and predict and project. Which is one of the reasons why I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to talk about the symbolism of his outfit and his bronze this and his fire that and his hair that. Um, because I think if we do that, you know what we're going to try and do? We're going to try and figure out, oh, I think now I know what Jesus looks like. No, you don't. And he shows up in other places in the Bible and the way he shows up is different. We don't want the figured out Jesus. We want Jesus to show up the way he desires to show up and do with us what he longs to do with us and ready us how he wants to ready us and convince us that life is worth lived for his great glory. And I love, by the way, um, that what's really key here is John's posture of expectancy. He's on a rocky island exiled. And he's in the spirit. He's, he's, he's asking, spirit, what is it that you want to show me? And it's in that posture of expectancy, not predicting and decoding and telling Jesus what he can and cannot do. It's just this posture of what do you want? 
that Jesus shows up in this unbelievable way. Um, that, that's, that's what we want. Um, we want him to show up and do his thing. By the way, as I was reading this, I was reminded of something. Team, you guys can come out um, to close. Um, I was reminded of a season that I went through um, man, some, some years ago where I experienced what I considered to be uh, attacks, spiritual attacks um, at night. So I'm sleeping. I wake up. And I just feel this heaviness in my room. And um, the only thing I can think to do is to say the name Jesus. But I, I can't mouth the words. I can barely breathe. I can barely move. And I'm in this struggle for a little while just trying to mouth the words Jesus. And I, I can't, can't say it. And then eventually something gives way and I whisper the name Jesus and the atmosphere changes a little bit. And I can remember the few times that this happened, I'd get up and I'd run and I'd turn on the light and I'd open my Bible and I'd start reading the scriptures, you know, and praying and spending time um, with the Lord and then trying to go back to sleep with the light on, of course, you know. And uh, this happened on, on, on a number of occasions to me. I can remember, I don't know what happened or what reason or why, on one particular occasion, this was happening, and in my mind, I said, Lord, if there is something that you want to show me, I'm open to it. And the room shifted, and the Lord placed on my heart some people to pray for, and I started to pray for them and experienced peace that night. And then when it happened again, I would do the same thing. And the same thing would happen. By the way, I noticed that then I was like, oh, I think I figured something out. And then it stopped. But beyond all of that, I started to think about this. What if it was mistaken identity that whole time? What if the whole time it was Jesus turning my room into a personal Patmos and showing up the way he chose to show up? See, because I always thought that if Jesus shows up, I'm going to feel butterflies. And I'm going to be happy. John would be like, mm-mm. I was like dead, bro. Completely terrified. And you study any other revelation encounter in the Bible. The first thing you hear the angel or Jesus say is what? Don't be afraid because when I show up, my holiness in your sinfulness is going to make you freak out. And I started to think, what if it, what if it was Jesus? And then I started to think a little more. Because if this is the devil, he's really dumb. And I know the devil's not dumb. Because every time it happened, the first thing I wanted to do was say what? Jesus! And then do what? And then read the Bible. And pray. And say Jesus. And read the Bible. And pray. Why would the devil continue to drive me into the arms of my Savior? And the reason I tell that to you is because sometimes I think we, we get so familiar and we think we know how Jesus will show up and then he shows up and we even mistake him for, for other kinds of things when it's him the whole time and for me it was. Now for some of you, you may experience something like that. It may not be Jesus and I don't know, but here's the point. Even if it was the devil in my room, guess what? The devil only gets a hall pass and access to my room because Jesus signed the note. So my question is still the same. Jesus, what do you want to say to me? I don't tend to have a lot of conversations with the devil. 
I talk to the one who signed the note and say, what is it that you want to show to me? But in those moments, Jesus showed up in ways I didn't predict and I didn't expect. In the moment, I'm like, Jesus, I know now, gone. I know through this series, our hope is that he would show up and he would impress us with himself and he would invite us and call us to what revelation requires of us. And what I do know is some of you, by the way, are going through storms and you're thinking the storm is evidence that Jesus has abandoned me and yet his voice was like rushing waters. I imagine John had an opportunity on the island to say, I'm on this rock and Jesus doesn't care about me. And yet that rock was the very designated meeting spot where Jesus intended to show up. And I'm just saying, maybe it's about a posture in your season. And maybe the fire isn't intended to burn you. Maybe the fire is just Jesus looking at you because his eyes are on fire. What we want is just, can we be open and say, Jesus, what is it that you want to do in us? And when you show up, you are glorious and you may do it in unexpected ways, but we want all of it. Our posture is one in which we're saying, reveal yourself to us. And what does your revelation therefore require of us so that we can live more rightly for your name's sake and for your glory? I don't know who you are, where you're at, um, this morning, but we do want to give an opportunity, even now as the band closes, to ask you, what does revelation require? And for some of you, you'd say, my sins have never been forgiven. I'm still an enemy with God. Well, there's a vat of grace and forgiveness with your name on it. If you'd simply say, I need forgiveness. In fact, if elders and small group leaders, you guys can do the courageous thing of starting to come up front now. We want to give you some people to pray with you um, up here. Maybe for some of you, you, you know Jesus, but you've just kind of been a frequent flyer at church and you've buckled in and you've just tuned it all out, blah, blah, blah. And what you need is a fresh awakening that says, I want your word to touch me afresh. And I want to ask the question, what is it that you want from me? Maybe some of you are going through difficult seasons. And the question is, Lord, could you really show up on this Patmos? And you just want somebody to, to pray alongside you. Whatever it is that the Spirit might be asking of you, we want to invite you, come on, take a moment, pray with one of our small group leaders or one of our elders um, up here. Just a way of saying, today starts a different direction, a different journey. So again, once we stand together, feel free to do that. Again, leaders, please come up front, please. Um, and um, let's have some folks for our people to, to pray with. I'm going to say this one thing really quickly, by the way. Sometimes I think there's a culture that thinks that coming up to pray with somebody is an evidence that something is wrong. And again, can I just reinforce, no, coming up is just an evidence that you are hungry and you want somebody to stand and agree with you. You don't have to, you can pray where you are, but I would encourage you to come on up and mark the moment. And then after the song, by the way, Olivia is gonna come and tell you some instructions about how to, to get to the food and enjoy hanging out um, together. Hope you plan to stay. Um, hope you plan to head to next steps to get to know a little bit more about us. But in the meantime, as we sing, please feel free to come on up. Jesus, we want to know you and experience you. You are glorious. It's all about you. Thank you for pouring your grace on us. Help us to constantly long to live for your glory and ask what you require of us.
Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.